The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec and now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Peter Turchin, whose new book, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites and the Path of Political Disintegration, does something very startling indeed. It proposes, if you like, a scientific theory of history, which, ever since the last person to do that, Karl Marx, has been somewhat out of fashion. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Sam. Can you tell me a little bit about how you approach this about what you call cleodynamics, this new new way of looking at history? Well, you know, we live in these very um, nice societies that are in principle capable of delivering high quality of life to, to the populations. However, as we know from history, all such complex societies in, uh, eventually enter a period of um, social and political turbulence which I have called end times. Why? The the quick answer is elite overproduction. Elite overproduction is something that we observe ubiquitously in all the periods preceding crisis periods in the past societies that we have studied. At this point, we have gathered uh, nearly 200 cases of such past crisis uh, ranging all the way from the uh, Roman the crisis of the Roman Republic and over to today, and um, too many elites uh, looking for a fixed and not increasing number of elite positions is seems to be the universal feature of this road to those crises. Yes, could you explain what what elite production means exactly? I mean, you've you've sketched it there. You explained very well in the book what what that means exactly in, in detail and what forms elite overproduction can take? Well, first, the first question uh, is, who are the elites? That's uh, simply uh, speaking, elites is the small proportion of the population of a society that concentrate social power in their hands. So think about the proverbial 1% in the United States or the Mandarin class in Imperial China or military nobility in medieval France. So these are this, uh, this is the small proportion of the population who gather in their hands the political, military, ideological, and administrative power. Now, elite overproduction occurs uh, when, because we have to ask the next, next question. How are elites uh, reproduced, uh, socially reproduced? You know, it, there is the... Um, process itself involves, obviously, some people desiring elite positions. We, we call them elite aspirants. And um, therefore, the question becomes, what is the balance between the supply of such elite positions and the number of elite aspirants vying for them? And when uh, in a society a situation develops that there are many more elite aspirants 
for the not increasing or stagnating number of elite positions, we have the conditions of elite overproduction. And elite overproduction uh, causes all kinds of difficulties for the societies because um, uh, too much, some competition is, is good, but excessive competition is um, is bad for the society because it um, leads to increasing uh, el- uh, a conflict amongst the elites, all right? And as this conflict becomes uh, more and more elevated, the social norms and in institutions that govern elite rotation start to get broken down because so many because people cheat. Yeah, many individual elites who are, uh, you know, lo- the losing uh, proportion of losing elite aspirants decide to break the rules and try to get, uh, you know, what they want um, in, in a different way. And so these these people become what you call the counter elites. Exactly, counter elites are those who work to overthrow to to what uh, what to them is the unjust social. Order and they aim to replace themselves. Uh, uh, you know, they, they aim to replace the established elites with themselves. And there's also, I mean, if these these people end up heading the revolutionary or disintegrative, you know, forces, they also have foot soldiers recruited, don't they? You say there's another part of part of this equation, which is the ordinary people and the condition of the ordinary people allowing these counter elites to cause trouble, as it were. Yes, exactly. And this is another useful concept that I discuss in my book. I call it the wealth pump. In fact, the wealth pump is a very uh, useful uh, mechanism that explains both um, the uh, conditions of elite overproduction and also why they have uh, a plentiful supply of food soldiers. So what's the what's uh, wealth pump? Normally, the, the economy works and it produces, um, you know, its fruits. And the big question becomes is how these fruits are divided between the elites and the workers. Under some conditions, the, as the economy grows, uh, the fruits are divided, uh, are shared fairly, and all boats are lifted, uh, you know, by that uh, that process. However, after some process, after um, societies become experience long-term conditions of internal peace and order, what uh, often happens is that the elites try to reconfigure the economy in ways that would profit them rather than common people. This is uh, known in sociology as the um, iron law of oligarchy simply because elites have power, they can turn it to their advantage. And as a result of that, more and more of the uh, fruits of the economy goes to the elites and less and less to the commoners. So what um, happens to the the common population? The technical term is uh, immiseration, popular immiseration, essentially stagnating or even falling the standards of living. So that's one bad thing. And that creates a lot of discontent amongst the population. And uh, as a result of that, creates um, a mass of potential uh, troops for for revolutionary leaders. But at the other end of the equation, because so much uh, wealth is disproportionately flowing towards the elites, that's uh, one of the reasons why we see elite overproduction. 
So if we look at economic elites, for example, obviously their numbers will increase and their uh, incomes will also grow as a result of the wealth pump operating. And that's how we get to elite overproduction. Now, we'll, we'll return to the, the cycles of this in a second, but I, I'm interested in the background as how you came to this theory, because you started out, which is fascinating to me, is that as you studied insects. <laughs> insects and uh, anim- other animals, mammals and so on, yes. And how did, how did that lead you to this? It seems an unlikely transition to make, but there seems to be a logic to it, no? There is an, there, there is, uh, an inner logic, yes. So I was trained as a theoretical biologist, and actually, actually, I'm a complexity scientist. I uh, use mathematical and statistical tools to study dynamical systems. And until the age of 40, I was uh, studying population cycles in insects and mammals, such as uh, lemmings, for example, deer. Well, what happened was that at that point, I felt that we sort of um, solved the really major um, questions. And I was looking around to do something interesting with my life. I, had t- I just got tenure. And, uh, you know, when you get academic tenure, you're supposed to try new things. And so this is uh, what, what happened. I decided to apply the uh, methodology to human societies. And this sort of methodology, which is, I mean, I, I expect very strongly resisted by traditional historians, how did it come to coalesce because you, you tell the story of how I mean there's other people who were working on similar fields you describe for instance Jack Goldston who's obviously quite a pioneering figure in this you know how did a critical mass of scientists who started to think your way come together and generate this this field of inquiry well first of all I, w- I want to say that we cleodynamicists we love uh, historians because cleodynamics is impossible without the great um, uh, empirical material that they've been gathering for centuries. So, of course, uh, some historians criticize us, but that's fine. I mean, the critique is also healthy in science. So one of the potential critiques uh, is that there is not simply not enough data in history to use for cleodynamics. And uh, yes, of course, as you go into the past, the knowledge that we have about past societies diminishes. But um, does it mean that we that um, the, the past is unknowable? No, because we can use a variety of um, often we call them proxies. You know, for example, how do you measure popular immiseration in the past if you don't have records telling you? about, uh, you know, the terrible life of peasants, which is often the case because the nobility didn't really care that much about them. Well, uh, there is a very uh, useful uh, biological proxy, a proxy for biological well-being. It is the height of the population. And so what we know is that when conditions of popular immiseration set in, uh, the average height of the commoner population starts to decline. And uh, we can measure that because in in the uh, museums, in the European museums, there are about 2 million skeletons covering the last uh, two or 3,000 uh, years. And they have been measured, they have been dated, and so we can construct the curves 
that tells, uh, tell us when uh, popul population immiseration develops and also when it uh, goes back. So uh, essentially, uh, we can do uh, science as history. And uh, many historians now are um, not only accepting, but even welcoming this uh, term. In fact, um, in the uh, data, historical database the project that I lead, we have, uh, we, are, we have been lucky to get more than 100 historians and archaeologists who are specialists in different uh, societies in the past, and they worked with us to help us gather the data and also to check it. So it's, um, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's actually, I was, when I started with this, I expected much more resistance. And there is resistance, but, uh, but it's not no, nowhere near as bad as it is sometimes portrayed. Now, you've produced in this, this book and in your, your kind of nascent field of cleodynamics, you know, quite a sort of simple and universal seeming, you know, argument that, Crisis, the periodic crises of complex societies are inevitably preceded by elite overproduction and popular immiseration, and that this sets in, in train the instability. Um, was that something that, as you started out looking at the data, you were expecting to find? I mean, were you thinking these are the things we need to be looking at, or was it something that emerged as a surprise out of your survey of the historical data? It, yes, a surprise. When I st started um, on this uh, project, I did not expect to see such clear patterns. I we don't want to overestimate it. Uh, so elite overproduction seems to be pretty ubiquitous feature, but uh, immiseration is often present, but not necessarily. You, you can have outbreaks of political instability purely as a result of elite overproduction, for example. But uh, back to your question, I started with a whole bunch of naive ideas, which I have gotten from reading uh, historical romance, which is uh, something, romances, which is something that I, as a kid, I was, uh, you know, I loved reading them. And that's probably one of the reasons why I decided uh, to go into history. But then as I started systematically reading the literature, mostly the uh, the economic, historical, uh, uh, economic history, historical sociology, anthropology, and so on and so forth, I uh, discovered a huge, large suite of different theories that were explaining things. And so Jack Goldstone's uh, theory was one of them. Uh, and being a scientist, um, having many theories is great on one hand, but on the other hand, to make progress in science, you have to start eliminating some theories in favor of others. And that's what, uh, that's essentially the work that uh, I and my colleagues are doing. We try to come, we try to come uh, to be a theory neutral in, in, in the beginning of the investigation. Then we look to gather data that would allow us to test theories against each other and then uh, allow the data, uh, this process to speak. Of course, uh, theory also needs to make sense. So that means that, in fact, uh, I, I missed uh, uh, a very important step. In order to test theories, especially because they're about dynamical things like our societies, which are complex systems with many interacting parts, you need to translate theories into mathematical models in order to be able to properly 
test them. So it's really uh, starting with a set of theories that many people propose, uh, including ourselves, translating them into mathematical models, extracting predictions, seeing where predictions disagree, and gathering data to, that allow us to, to tell which uh, theory re- represents the um, empirical data better. Now, this this theory you've come up with, I mean, among other things, it does seem to very slightly ring of, of Marx and Hegel in that it posits, A, that successful and wealthy societies contain the seeds of their own destruction, and B, that these things move in cycles. And you're able to, to be quite sort of, I wouldn't say precise because you're more fastidious than that, but you say, you know, every couple of hundred years, it all goes to hell. How, how precise is that? How universal is that? And was, did Hegel get it right? Let me first address a question about uh, Marx and Engels. They were, um, of course, very important thinkers, but they lived um, uh, in the 19th century and they simply did not have the amount of data that we have now. So uh, the, theory that, the theories that we look at and the theories that seem to be supported by data they have some Marxian elements, but they have also Max Weber and Emil Durkheim and, uh, you know, uh, even uh, Malthus. Uh, so uh, the, there are really synthetic theories. There are, right, there are good ideas that you need to combine and recombine in ways that are, that are best supported by data. Now, to the question of cycles, in fact, another uh, cleodynamicist to whom I would like to mention lived in the 14th century. His name was Ibn Khaldun. He was uh, a Tunisian, uh, and he wrote a remarkable book, uh, so uh, and uh, where he presaged uh, some of the observations uh, that you've made. But the cycles, yes, you're quite right. Um, these are not um, strict mathematical cycles. These are not planetary motions. I mean, think about planetary motion. You can describe it with just, uh, you know, a single equation, really. But human societies are much more complex than that. Also, even though all complex human societies uh, experience periodically those end times, the uh, different societies work on different, um, you know, uh, time frames. So if you have a society, because elite reproduction is such an important factor, if you have a society that produces elite faster, than another society. Now, those societies will experience much more rapid cycles. And what are those societies? Well, societies with polygamous elites. All right, so think, you know, about uh, Genghis Khan. All right, he had, uh, I don't even know how many wives he had. He had hundreds of children and or uh, many Islamic societies. And so those societies, they go through Ibn Khaldun's cycles, which are much shorter, about a century or even less. Yuplaudun famously said that it takes four generations uh, for a cycle to, to occur. Now, you also say that you know, in, the, in the monogamous elite societies, it's, it's longer, it's a couple of hundred years. But the, the disintegrative phase, the, the sort of breakdown and, 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 well, not quite recovery, comes in a series of sort of choppy 40 or 50 year cycles. Why is that? That's a very good uh, question, and we are still um, working out answers uh, for it. But my um, idea and uh, is that it's um, essentially a father's and son's uh, cycles. Because um, once a society gets into this uh, breakdown mode, 
right? We have uh, serious uh, violence. And violence is um, self-correcting in a certain way. First of all, the most, uh, you know, uh, the most um, ardent um, uh, people uh, get uh, eliminated by getting killed. But also the general population uh, becomes tired of constant uh, turbulence. And there is uh, going to be a growing psychological need for somehow to tamp it down. All right. Now, if the uh, structural conditions that have uh, driven a society to the crisis, elite overproduction and uh, immiseration, have it's not got a wealth pump operating. Yes, they yeah. continue to operate. So the wealth pump has not been shut down. It continues to create uh, immiseration and uh, extra elites. All right. Then what happens is that um, after the generation that has experienced civil war dies off or retires, the new generation comes, uh, and those are people who have not had um, uh, first-hand experience of what it means to have a revolution or a civil war, and they start the whole thing over again. So if the fathers uh, go through the revolution, the sons who grow under those conditions resist any kinds of um, um, calls uh, for, to re- for rebellion and so on and so forth, and the next generation their grandchildren uh, repeat the mistakes of their grandfathers. And can you maybe give us, I mean, some concrete or one or two concrete historical examples that you've you've looked at? I mean, the book's book's full of them, so maybe you'd be better to to suggest which ones most easily or starkly illustrate your your ideas. Well, um, so for example, uh, let's talk about the Hundred Years' War. The best way to think about it is not the dynastic war between England and France, all right, but it was really a, a long period, long conditions of civil war within France, within which England meddled when the French society has fallen apart. And so that's what we see in France. We see um, the um, essentially the civil war starts around the uh, 1350s. And uh, Henry, um, uh, the, which, whichever it was, the third, I believe, right, comes in, you know, you have the Battle of Poitiers and so on and so forth. The French are really prostrated and they go through uh, 20 years of this really horrible uh, situation. Finally, the French elites figure out that we've got to pull together. Right, and they do that. They kick out the English, by the way. So by 1380, they stabilize uh, uh, France. All right, then the next generation comes, starting in the very early 1400s. You have, it's almost like the same, uh, the same Game of Thrones story being played over, but with different characters. All right. Again, there are uh, several uh, factions. They start battling it out. Another English king, uh, Henry V, uh, this time comes in. And we have another uh, bloody uh, battle, Agincourt, and uh, and French uh, are prostrated for another twenty years. Finally, they they figure it out, get get their uh, house in order, kick the English out, and and then at that point they actually manage to rebalance the society so that then they have like a hundred years of really uh, you know great period, uh, Renaissance. Uh, uh, internally peace, uh, externally, of course, lots of wars of, um, of conquest, uh, uh, beautiful arts, um, and, um, and all kinds of things. So that's, that's it. There you have these two 
uh, bouts of, um, of separated by 50 years, roughly speaking, all right, of, of what appears to be a fathers and sons uh, cycles. Now, one of your other main studies, which is, you know, comes right up to the present day, but you talk about how the United States of America, you know, at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century, had this extraordinary sort of dodged a bullet at the end of the Gilded Age when you were absolutely in these conditions for a, a crisis. And yet what, what followed was the sort of, you know, post-crash New Deal situation that somehow averted violence. Why did that happen? What, what's your reading of that? Yes, this is um, um, a very good question. And it actually is one of the reasons why I am, um, you know, realistic optimist. Let's, uh, let's be cautious about that. So the United States, United States, uh, let's travel back because with uh, history and dynamical systems, um, you always want to know the prehistory then of what, um, you know, what led to the crisis of 1920s uh, in the United States. So the wealth pump got turned on in the United States around 1830 or so. It was greatly helped by massive immigration of people from Europe, which depressed um, their wages and turned on the, um, uh, the wealth pump. Suddenly you get like uh, dozens of new millionaires, all right? And they're mostly in the north uh, and northeast, all right? Whereas the, uh, the governing, uh, the ruling uh, um, elites are the southerners, primarily the slaveholders, and uh, in, co- in collaboration with northeastern merchants. So the new uh, millionaire elite essentially rebels against the older elite in the civil war they they overthrow them and uh, temporarily abate elite or elite of reproduction because all the southern, all the old elites, they're basically, uh, you know, they're pushed down. Um, simply some, lots of them get killed, all right, in the, in the war, and the rest of them get uh, their wealth, slaves, taken away from them. All right, 50 years later, um, we have another series uh, of, uh, another crisis. And takes multiple forms. There is uh, violent um, worker strikes. Uh, there are horrible um, race uh, riots. There is um, a campaign uh, by uh, anarchists, a bombing campaign by anarchists, and so on and so forth. There's just multiple uh, outbreaks of instability fed from the common uh, source. So uh, at this point, first of all, um, there were still some people who remembered civil war and they did not want to repeat it. So that was one thing. The second thing is that there was an external uh, source of threat from the rising um, uh, from the Nazi Germany, especially the Soviet, the communist Soviet Union. In fact, in the 1920s, there was the first Red Square was the first Red Scare was in uh, 1921, and uh, because uh, several uh, members of the political elites, the United States were convinced that there was going to be a Bolshevik revolution, and so uh, essentially the um, ruling elites got frightened, and one uh, segment of them uh, convinced the rest that we better do um, reforms from uh, from the up down rather than revolution from uh, bottom bottom up. And so um, it was a lengthy process. It actually started in the progressive era, so right after 1900, 
and it was really most of these uh, legislations that are part that, that became part of the New Deal. They were proposed or been tried during the Progressive Era, but the New Deal, so the 1930s, right? Uh, it set them, uh, you know, it's, it uh, set them in, not in stone, but uh, uh, you know, it f- finalized uh, those uh, initiatives, and that rebalanced. Uh, uh, so what what what's what's happening? First of all, very uh, high uh, taxes on the wealth, over ninety uh, percent tax on uh, on incomes above one million. It's just it, it sounds unthinkable. Um, minimum wage, introduction and rise, and um, and uh, giving workers power in terms of labor unions. So that rebalanced thing, this shut down the wealth pump, and then we had a very good run until 1970s. So this is an example. And notice that there was an aftershock uh, two generations after the 1920s, uh, in the late 1960s and during the 1970s, there was an aftershock. But because the structural conditions were were, uh, quite benign, uh, there was no popular immigration, for example, at that point. It all, uh, there was still uh, quite a lot of turbulence, but it was nothing. Um, like uh, the previous uh, periods. And so now we are again to generations. So this is uh, uh, in the United States, uh, it's almost clock, uh, clockwise that we get these periods of, um, uh, of uh, you know, uh, instability every couple of generations. But it's the, but let me repeat this, this is an important point. It's the structural conditions that really determine whether we are going to have a serious one like today or not. And your argument, I think, here is that the turbulence of, you know, the last couple of years in America has been, you know, not only predictable, but predicted by you, and that it's structural and that it goes right back to, I guess, the 1970s and 1980s, when suddenly a kind of more neoliberal, you know, with the wealth pump got turned back on again, and a neoliberal ideology took over the States again. Yeah. So, um, in fact, I, I started when I started working on this. I didn't want to go into the present because uh, it's uh, it's um, uh, rife with uh, potential criticism and things like that. Uh, it's it's hard to study history, but as it unfolds, uh, human passions are much more involved. But um, as I was giving talks in early 2000s about past uh, crisis, people always asked me, okay, so where are we? And that's when I decided to do that. Around 2007 or 8, I started, I gathered data. Remember that it takes quite a lot of work to do this type of thing. It took me several years to gather the appropriate data. And I was shocked. I was shocked by what I found. That's why I published this prediction in 2010 in um, scientific journal Nature, because I felt it was not a prophecy. It was a way to, uh, again, to remember that the big part of what Cleodynamics does is testing theories. And what is the most rigorous way of testing theories is uh, is essentially run the model forward and, and see what it says and then wait and, uh, and, and then wait and see what actually happened. So that was really the motivation behind publishing this uh, forecast. Now, if there is, as you suggest, quite a kind of, not rigid, but a, a fairly 
robust model for when societies are at risk of breaking down and that these cycles, they may be longer or shorter, but they are semi-inevitable. Are you able to picture what are the sorts of societies and sorts of social disposition that are stabilist for longest? Because you, you seem to suggest that, you know, for example, the so-called Nordic model, which oddly was, was America's model in the mid middle of the 20th century, yeah. is a more, you know, are, are the sort of more redistributive, left-wing, um, so, social demo, democratic ideas safer in the long run? Yes. In, in fact, I don't believe these cycles are inevitable at all. Um, the, our model is not perfect. There is still a lot more work needs to be done to understand how this um, end times come about. But it's, uh, it's, it's already is good enough, I believe, to make suggestions about how we can uh, balance. It's like riding uh, a bicycle, you know. You have to balance uh, all the time. It takes active uh, management. So uh, you want to shut down the um, elite overproduction. So thankfully, we have monogamous societies and they have spread over the world in a big way because monogamous societies are more stable than societies that overproduce their elites very rapidly. All right. Second thing is that this is what social democrats in Nordic countries, starting with Denmark, they managed to balance it in such a way that you have at the table, you always have uh, the uh, economic elites, workers, and the state. And this tri- tripartite uh, uh, system allows to uh, allows the society to balance the, um, uh, the interests of all. And they've been very uh, successful at that. But I spent actually a sabbatical in Denmark uh, a few years ago. And I see some signs that they may be abandoning it because the um, neoliberal ideology, right, the free market fundamentalism, is making inroads in Northern Europe also. So they should be they should be careful about abandoning that uh, model which worked so well for them. Is it possible to to maintain these models, even if you've hit on the ideal model in an age of globalization and, if you like, interstate? competition, cooperation in an economic form that that makes it harder to sort of ring fence yourself. True. Um, So, for example, uh, one argument is that if uh, you increase taxes on the wealth, they will just leave, go elsewhere. Well, uh, but, you know, in the United States, uh, there was globalization in the late 19th century, and which ended with the uh, with the uh, 1929 uh, market collapse and things like that. And so um, in the United States, uh, the wealthy were uh, taxed very at, a, at very high rates, but uh, not all, some of them probably left, uh, but um, most of them didn't. And in fact, the economy worked ex- exceedingly well uh, in the sub- subsequent uh, decades. So uh, my thinking is that uh, this is somewhat overblown uh, when we talk about uh, dangers of globalization. And also, as um, societies try new things and succeed and show success, they tend to be imitated by other societies. So certainly the United States is a big enough country where we can uh, afford uh, to start implementing some, some such uh, measures. And if we are successful, then uh, that would be imitated by other societies that don't want to get into a civil war. 
I was going to say something that's very interesting in the book that's maybe the, those those sort of social democratic liberals who are patting themselves on the back for, you know, well, we've got the right system. You said that immigration, which is a great shibboleth of the, of the progressive left, is that immigration actually and an untrammeled immigration is a problem. Yes, it is. It's a problem in the absence of institutions that mitigate its uh, effects on depressing their wages. I mean, if you don't have uh, institutions, if you allow um, the uh, market fundamentalism to rule, so what's going to happen? I mean, it's one of the laws of economics. You, sub- you increase supply of something, you depress its price. So you, you increase the supply of uh, workers and you um, you dec- depress their wages. In fact, it's very interesting that the old left, paleo left, so to speak, they are much more. They were much more familiar with this idea uh, that um, and Marx. It's it, Marx uh, himself wrote about bringing the workers from Ireland to control uh, English uh, workers. It's um, uh, the new left uh, has um, uh, changed um, its ideology in a very substantial way, or even you know we don't have to go to Marx. Uh, uh, you know uh, we can uh, talk about um, uh, present-day leftists uh, in the United States. Uh, you probably can guess who I'm talking about. Uh, right, so yes, you, mentioned, you mentioned Bernie speaking exactly. out against him. Bernie has been uh, burnt for saying this. You know that it's a, it's the right wing idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that that does neatly return to us to America because you know it's the country that seems to be in crisis. Now, you describe it very nakedly as a plutocracy. You say this idea that by the people, for the people, of the people is just rubbish and that the data shows that the influence of ordinary voters on policy is like zero. Exactly. How exactly is it, do you think, to survive in as peaceful a way as possible the present period of turbulence if all the power is currently concentrated in the hands of self-interested elites? Does that, or a, a section of feuding self-interested elite aspirants and counter-elites and so forth, you know, how is that going to be resolved if, as you say, unless they have the sort of scare the Russian Revolution gave the tycoons of the Gilded Age, you know, if they don't have that sort of scare, how are they going to start acting against their own obvious short-term interests? Well, uh, one possibility you have to face, I hope that it's not uh, very high, is that you will eventually have some kind of a revolution uh, in the United States that would, would shut the uh, wealth pump down. I hope not because I, um, I've studied so many revolutions. I know how horrible they are to live through. But uh, so my hope is that, is, is that it will be um, uh, the pro-social, um, a, a pro-social segment of the elites who will understand the problem well enough and uh, persuade uh, the rest of them that they would have, and there would be substantial uh, sacrifice. We don't uh, we don't know yet what precisely what mixture of um, uh, of reforms it will take, but probably paying higher taxes would be one of them, and paying more um, to workers, uh, which will affect the profits. Of course, uh, is going to be another uh, way. 
So there's going to be substantial self-sacrifice involved in it. I hope that it will not, uh, it will be, we will be able to accomplish it as a society uh, without um, uh, without major bloodshed. And what I think, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I'm not going to start a social movement, but what we do need uh, a broad-based uh, grassroots social movement probably to put pressure on the elites. That would be a, a very helpful thing. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people say, surely, you know, however violent and crazy, you know, and, and polarised the United States is now, surely we're not on the verge of revolution or an actual civil war. I'm wondering, you have an example in the book of somebody before the Russian Revolution who had exactly that same sort of... Situation. That sort of, sort of situation. Is it Morozov, his name? I can't remember. Ah, uh, Morozov, yes. Morozov, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe tell me his story briefly? Because I think he's such an interesting instance of the way in which we find it very hard because of our incumbency to, to, to see anything really radical happening until it does. Yeah, exactly. So Sava Marozov, um, he was one um, of the, I think, 10 uh, wealthiest people in Russia around, let's say, 1900, 1900, all right? And um, he was actually, he was quite uh, progressive uh, for his own age. He was, um, he owned a number of manufacturers uh, that produced clothing and he treated his uh, workers uh, quite well. Um, and uh, he also felt that the system, the tsarist um, uh, system, was unfair, and therefore uh, he wanted uh, uh, Russia to evolve into a a better governed uh, society. And so he uh, he, uh, funded um, uh, Bolsheviks, uh, who were not called Bolsheviks, the Social Democratic Party, which uh, eventually gave rise to uh, the Bolsheviks. He, in fact... um, uh, he published, uh, he gave money to publish their newspaper. Uh, all right. So, um, but, but then revolution of 1905 uh, happened. And um, he uh, was uh, clearly surprised by how rapidly things went uh, to hell, essentially. And he had a nervous breakdown because he, could not uh, control. Uh, he could not uh, con- not only uh, not even control the events. He could not even shape them. It was uh, a uh, you know situation which was completely under, uh, beyond control, and so he had a uh, um, nervous breakdown. He went to France. Uh, his doctors told him to go to uh, southern France to recover, but he either committed suicide or some people say he was murdered there most probably committed suicide. So clearly this was uh, uh, an unexpected consequence of his actions. This is why we need to worry. This is why we need a science of history. We need a science of history so that we can uh, uh, gather data and calculate things. You know, when you're building a bridge, you, you take measurements and then you do calculations. We need to do the same thing to avoid unintended uh, consequences. And just to end this story, uh, uh, his um, widow uh, lived in their uh, very luxurious uh, house uh, near Moscow until the next revolution when this house was taken away from uh, Morozov. Morozov's 
and uh, it became the, uh, the the house where the residence of Vladimir Lenin. So uh, to this adds, that's how an ironic twist to this whole story. <laughs> it is, it is truly grim. Now you also just to, just to finish, I'm, I'm intrigued. You have things to say about the situation of Ukraine and the divergent trajectories of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. But you say at the moment that Ukraine has only two ways out of the present situation of war it's in. Either it's to go down as a state altogether or transform itself into a militocracy. What do you mean by that? Well, um, the, um, in fact, we, I, I wrote this more than a year ago. And of course, um, let me be very cautious about uh, talking about this situation because our data, we don't really know uh, in many, many uh, in, in many ways, what's going on there? Um, but um, what uh, what I do know is that the uh, oligarchs, so those uh, very wealthy uh, plutocrats that essentially uh, ruled uh, Ukraine, they had a very severe diminution of their power. M- many of their uh, wealth, much of their wealth, was taken away. Some of it was, in fact, in uh, ended up in under Russian control, for example, and. But also on the Ukrainian Ukrainian side, uh, several oligarchs have been essentially um, have been dispossessed. So they are definitely uh, they seem to be on the way out, right? So now um, uh, Zelensky is uh, trying to position himself as uh, a wartime president. So this could be uh, one way a meritocracy would uh, you know take root in Ukraine or. You know, his um, chief uh, general, uh, Zaluzhny, has been also um, suggested as a possible good ruler. So that would be direct. Uh, that if, if, for example, Zaluzhny becomes the next president, that would be um, formally a militocracy. <laughs> so who knows? But again, I want to be very careful here. Um, the wars are some of the most difficult uh, uh, things to predict. In fact, uh, they are essentially unpredictable. It's uh, uh, let me make one uh, important point here: that in uh, in uh, history, there are some things which are very hard to predict and are probably unpredictable, and there are some other things which uh, which are more uh, amenable to understanding and prediction. Right? The outcomes of wars—that's definitely a very uh, difficult thing to predict. So, what will happen to Ukraine? Uh, you'll have to ask uh, a prophet, uh, a seer, <laughs> but not me. Well, can I, I, I don't want to tax you too much as a prophet, but also the, the final question I'd like to ask you is just the UK. Is your sense that the way that Brexit has will have changed the dynamics of our, our elites, you know, is becoming less globalised? How do you think that will affect, if you like, the length of our collapse cycle. Is Brexit a good thing for the stability of this country or, or a bad one in your reading of it? Certainly, um, uh, Brexit has shocked uh, the UK elites because it was unexpected. In fact, I was um, uh, uh, I was um, uh, once uh, speaking to the same set of uh, invest- investors right, um, uh, right after uh, your uh, prime minister who was responsible for it um, so um, uh, clearly, they did not expect uh, this to happen, and uh, and I hear that um, there's been um, sort of um, 
at least some talk that uh, it's uh, this is something that we need to uh, to uh, take notice of that uh, that uh, that uh, the discontent, the amount of discontent, uh, the rate of discontent is too high, and so it can take um, other ways out, uh, which would be undesirable in many ways. So, um, as a shocking event, it was similar to the election of uh, Donald Trump, of course, of course, in the United States. Although I, I, I don't think that the United uh, that American elites have learned the lesson yet. Right. Uh, hopefully, the British uh, elites uh, will uh, take the necessary steps to rebalance the US society. Well, perhaps we'll now have the chance to do it more autonomously. So that's a happy note to end on. Peter Turchin, thank you very much indeed for your time. Enjoy talking with you, Sam. <laughs>